Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Chris Consolis, professor of astrophysics at the University of Nottingham in the UK. Hi, Jim. Great to be here. Really good to have you here. We're going to talk about something that listeners to this show know that I'm very interested in, which is, is there intelligent life in the universe? Actually, in this case, we're going to be talking about, is there communicating extraterrestrial intelligence? Chris and his co-author, damn, I don't have your co-author's name in front of me. Why don't you tell me your co-author's name? The co-author was Tom Westby, and he is the uh, first author, and he's the one who took really the the lead in writing uh, the paper and doing the analysis. I was more of his supervisor. He's a, a master student who works in engineering at the University of Nottingham and in mathematics. He's like a, um, uh, kind of like a lecturer type position there where he does quite a bit of teaching and he was interested in a, in doing a, a project in astronomy with me and and um, this this project on asking about how many communicating intelligent civilizations they are is not really something that let's call it mainstream astronomy uh, would sometimes approve of or do and so Someone who wanted to do like a terminal degree that's a master's would be the best person to do this kind of project because he's not interested in having a full-time career as an astronomer. And I'm already established, so they can't get rid of me so easily. I love it. It's kind of like in uh, cognitive science, uh, speculation about consciousness has that same uh, attribute. You better wait till you get your Nobel Prize or at least till you're a tenured professor to ever <laughs> uh, to say the C word or you'll be in big trouble. Right. Fortunately, yeah. that's starting to break down. I hope uh, SETI becomes a legitimate, more legitimate field. I mean, we had uh, Jill Tarter on the show back in September. And of course, she spent her whole life fighting against the prejudice against both female yeah, astronomers. Yeah. And SETI, and, and has done done lots of very interesting work. Absolutely. Anyway, the uh, paper we're going to talk about today was uh, recently published by Chris and his co-author. It's called The Astrobiological Copernican Weak and Strong Limits for Intelligent Life. It's published in the Astrophysical Journal. Uh, but for most of us, getting it off the archive uh, server is just fine. A pre-pressed version. A little ugly, but it's definitely readable. And as always, we'll post a link to that article on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. Uh, again, as uh, listeners to the show know, I am absolutely fascinated with this question about uh, extraterrestrial life. In fact, my own personal hierarchy of scientific questions, I rank at number two. People say, well, what's your number one? And my number one is, why is there something and not nothing? You know, why does the universe even exist? Uh, and uh, like uh, uh, SETI, that's considered a somewhat uh, out-of-bounds question in some of the more established fields of science, but that's all right. But number two is, are we alone? Has so many huge implications about, you know, what is the purpose of humans on Earth? You know, what is our destiny? What's the destiny of the universe? Just gigantic question. And uh, this is a question people have been speculating about for a long time. And uh, Uh, Chris and team have done something which is very interesting, which is they've taken the old Drake equation and they've updated it with a lot of the new findings in science, which we're going to go over here a little bit. And they've uh, used a... Uh, an interesting, I'll argue with them a little bit about the, 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 uh, the appropriateness of it, but this weak and strong uh, Copernican principle, uh, and, it, and it yields some you know, specific numbers on how many, what's the range of the number of uh, uh, communicating uh, civilizations within our galaxy. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Chris to maybe frame a little bit about the history of the Drake equation, you know, and uh, some of the insights on new scientific discoveries that have allowed you to uh, uh, restate it in a, in a different, perhaps more tractable fashion. Sure. Thanks very much. Right. So essentially, the way to look at this problem is really to, in some ways, take it from a historical perspective. So for many thousands of years, people have wondered about 
life on other planets and other places within our galaxy and within the universe. And they've actively speculated on this for as long as really we've been able to write. So we know ancient Greeks thought about this, and we know that uh, throughout time since then that it's also been a major question. People were burned at the stake for, for suggesting it, uh, and it's been highly controversial throughout time and simply because we just don't know. And we still don't know. We don't have an answer. And, and my paper doesn't tell us an answer either. It just gives us some benchmark for how to measure, measure this question and what the potential answer might be within a few assumptions. So with that, for let's say a couple hundred years or so in the past from now, the astronomers that thought about this question were quite bullish on the idea that there is life throughout even the solar system. So for example, astronomers like William Herschel and his son John Herschel, two of the most distinguished astronomers at the turn of the 19th century, both believed that that uh, many of the planets and even the sun and the moon were inhabited, that there was life throughout our, our solar system. And in fact, of course, you have Percival Lowell and the canals on Mars, which was a huge topic at the turn of the 20th century, with many, many astronomers believing this. Of course, there were doubts in that time. But throughout the 20th century, as we've learned more and more about the solar system, we have realized that life, at least intelligent life, certainly doesn't really or cannot exist, let's say, within our solar system, that we are really the only intelligent species within our solar system. It would be hard to believe that they could be so well hidden that we wouldn't have seen anything by now. And that, of course, happened when you had these space probes going to, to Mars, landing on Mars, Venus, and so on. And we know that there's no you know, civilizations living on Mars building canals. That's certainly not true. And there, there, there isn't even, even evidence for any kind of past life on Mars. That's convincing, I would think, so far. It's going to jump in just with one little pushback, which is, uh, you know, there is some thinking that there, you know, that there could be life, maybe even intelligent life, though probably not communicating, at least, well, I don't know about that, uh, on some of the, a uh, couple of the icy moons, uh, Europa, what's the other one around Saturn, uh, I forget the name, but, but anyway, there's two of them that's thought that we'll have uh, water oceans uh, well under the surface that uh, could be yeah. liquid water, and we'll have rocky bottoms, so they'll provide the... Uh, metallic ions that are necessary for our kind of life. So yeah, we could have something like octopuses or something like that down there. Uh, and, and who knows once you, how far, what they might have been able to develop. So I wouldn't quite rule it out in the solar system yet. And it is, to my mind, one of the very key questions uh, that will actually help uh, get some traction on the part of the Drake equation that you more or less punted on, uh, which is, uh, uh, is life does it happen all the time? Does it happen never, almost never, you know, fairly often, but uh, a random roll of dice and, you know, looking at those uh, undersea environments may provide us a big clue on that. But anyway, continue. Sorry for the, inter uh, for the interruption. No, 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 no. Please interrupt as much as you like. Uh, yeah. So what you said is, is true. What, what I perhaps should have said in a clearer way is that there isn't an intelligent communicating life within the solar system, that we would have detected that, unless the way they communicate is very different from the way that we do. And that's hard to imagine how that might be. So what I mean by that is there's not like these octopi are not, you know, they don't have like um, under underwater cities that, that emit light or, or have radio waves or something, because we would have detected that by now. So that's what I, what I really meant by that. So you're absolutely right that these moons could indeed have some form of life in them. And I certainly would not want to discourage people from thinking about that, considering that, or, and searching for it and having missions to go look for it. I think all that's very good and, and should be done. But I do think that, that it would be hard to imagine that there would be intelligent communicating life on, um, on those moons. But hey, if I'm wrong, that would be fantastic, right? That'd be great. Okay, so that's really the, the kind of the history up into the 20th century for this idea of looking for, let's say, life on other parts of uh, the universe. And it's always been something which has been solar system focused. People really want to know about it in the solar system. People want to know and find out life in the solar system. It's really been the focus for a very long time. And personally, I think that when we noticed that life wasn't super common, at least in the solar system, that people got very discouraged about this idea of there being any kind of life throughout the universe, simply because we weren't finding it 
in places where we once thought it might exist. Of course, SETI happened at about the same time, and SETI is, is a little bit different from looking for life in the uh, solar system because the traditional SETI looks for radio waves coming from other stars which may be produced by an intelligence, something which cannot be produced by a known astrophysical object or a process which emits light in a way that we understand. You'd have to find a signal which looks artificial, that is, looks made by an, like it's made by an intelligence. And that started in around 1960, and since then, these, these SETI surveys have gotten more sophisticated and bigger, and you have various big uh, projects going on now to look for SETI in this way, and that's fantastic. So the question that we wanted to, to answer, and this is something that I've been thinking about for for a long time, for almost, well, 10 years now, is can we actually say something about the number of likely communicating intelligent civilizations that are in the galaxy that we could detect right now? So there's a lot to pick apart with, with that statement. So you have to have life. That's, that's the first thing. And then you have to also have intelligent life. That's the second thing. But then you also have to have communicating intelligent life. So you have to have all three of those for this calculation to work. Okay. So if you have intelligent life, so we've had intelligent life on on Earth for for a very long time, for you know maybe a hundred thousand years or so, maybe more than that, and we've had communicating intelligent life for only about a hundred years. That is, that's how long we on Earth as humans have been artificially producing signals from the Earth, which go out into space. Okay, and you can think of this as radar, as radio waves from uh, radio, from television, from satellites, or even lights that come from cities. So those are artificial reproductions of artificial light, which is not produced by an astrophysical process. It's produced by an intelligence, a communicating intelligence. So that's what we mean by that. And so we know that's existed on Earth for about 100 years. Okay. Now, the other thing which happened in the last decade is that we've learned a lot about about uh, galaxies, about star formation, about planets, where we can start really answering this question of how many of these type of communicating extraterrestrial civilizations might there be throughout our galaxy. And the way we approached this problem was very simple. We just said, let's assume that, that life, intelligent life, and even a communicating intelligent life is a natural process which happens in science. Now, this is a big question, of course, and, you know, we could very well be wrong. I completely admit this, but we have no idea if it's right or wrong, so I would argue it's important to, to make that assumption and to look at what you find. So the question is, how many of these exist throughout our galaxy? How many of these communicating extraterrestrial civilizations are there? So let's just assume that they just form as a natural part of science. For example, if you have the right amount of, of gas at the right temperature and density, you form a star, you form a galaxy, you form different things that you see in science are produced in a way which is predictable based on the initial conditions of, of how you start. So why should life be any different than that? So this is really the way that I like to think about it, and this is the assumption that we make in this calculation. We'll come back to this again about testing that assumption when SETI actually succeeds and, let's say, maps the galaxy in terms of its, of its intelligent life within it. Okay, so what do you need to know to do this calculation? You need to know how many stars are as old as the sun. You need to know how many of those stars can survive that long. So the sun is about, about 5 billion years old. How many other stars that are existing in our galaxy today are at least that old? And it's actually a pretty high fraction. It's, it's, it's in the 90s, the percentage of stars that are in our galaxy today are potentially able to host life in terms of its age. So that doesn't really disqualify very many stars. Then you have the idea of how many of these stars have planets. And this is something which has always been a big unknown, and you mentioned this already, the Drake equation, is, is how many stars have planets. And this is something that we actually have some idea about now from the Kepler mission, which is a satellite mission which, which observed uh, a patch of sky to look for planets around stars. And was able to say there's about 17-18% of stars have planets in the habitable zone. And the habitable zone is that area around the star, which is not too hot, which is not too cold, which is able, in principle, to form life as we know it on Earth. That is, the same temperature as roughly the sun uh, at, the, uh, at the surface of the Earth. So, 
with those two things, you, you now know how many stars there are, you know how many planets there are around each sun. But at the same time, another feature, which was never part of the original Drake equation, is answering the question, well, how does the metallicity of the stars change throughout the galaxy? So the metallicity is really critical for this, I think. And the reason is, well, first of all, let me explain what metallicity is. So metallicity to an astronomer is any element which is heavier than helium. So that kind of is sometimes funny to people. When I, when I teach this in, in, in my classes and I tell students this, they, they sometimes laugh because it sounds ridiculous. And I think it did to me once too, but this is the way astronomers talk. So metals are anything heavier than helium in the periodic table. So elements like he, uh, carbon, um, oxygen, nitrogen, the big ones you need for life are all what astronomers call metals. And these all sort of correlate together. That is, when you find a, a star that has a lot of carbon, you also find a lot of, of oxygen and nitrogen and so on. They go together because they're formed in uh, nucleosynthesis in, in stars, which then go supernova and go through stellar evolution, which then reproduces these elements into the interstellar medium, which is then used for further star formation. So they correlate together. So what you need, essentially, getting to the, the, the point of this, is that you need a star that has a high metal content, that is has lots of these elements to form life, because you can't make life, as far as we know it, out of just hydrogen and helium. It doesn't exist, and it's hard to imagine how that could ever happen. If you want things like amino acids, um, these kind of things, you need to have these, these elements that are heavier than helium. So the places in our galaxy where you have these, these heavier elements are more likely to form life. And that is also something that has only been known in the last five years or so. And so we know how many stars have the right metal content. And by the way, the sun, our own star, is pretty metal rich compared to most stars in our galaxy. It is um, much richer than most, most nearby stars, at least, in our own galaxy. And that may or may not have anything to do with the fact that we exist at all. But I think it does. I think you need to have these heavy elements and you need to have them in great abundance to actually produce life. Okay, so putting all that together, you can then ask, well, how many of these stars have a planet which can host life, uh, 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 potentially in the habitable zone? How many of them have the right metal content? And when you do that, what you need to then calculate is how long you think these intelligent communicating civilizations will last. And this is really one of the uh, key aspects of this, and one of the funnest parts of it, and we hope we, hopefully we can get into this in more detail. But essentially, it's how long do you think these civilizations will last? This has always been one of the big unknowns within the Drake equation. And the simple thing that we did was, was one of the things we did, was to just assume that the life which exists, which is communicating, is similar to our own. And we know that we've been around for 100 years sending out signals into space. So we just asked the question, well, what if these other civilizations only last 100 years and we know that we've lasted 100? We may go longer. We may go, well, hopefully go longer. But, uh, you know, we may go 200 years, a million years. We don't know. But we know we've done 100. So let's just see if we use 100 as the typical average lifespan of an intelligent communicating civilization. How many would you expect to find? So when we put all that together, what we find is that you have, uh, on average, about 36. And then if you look at the error range in that, which is important, based on the errors on these values, you find that the error goes from a couple to up to about 200. So that's really the range of what you would expect based on this assumption about how life forms within our galaxy. If you think life forms in our galaxy around other stars in a similar way as it does on our own, that is, that life, an intelligent life, is not outside of the, let's say, scientific process of, of forming structure and, and, and how science works, then this is really how many you would expect to see based on a lifespan which is similar to our own at the current age. Now, if you want to believe that, that the lifespan of an average civilization is much longer than 100 years, then you can easily use our formula and calculate how many you would expect and that number would go up. But this is sort of a lower limit, if you will, based on this assumption. Okay. Uh, let me ask a couple of clarifying questions. Yep. Uh, one, in your paper, you, you lay out two different models, the uh, weak and the strong uh, Copernican principle. Uh, as I recall from the paper, 36 is for the strong Copernican principle. Is that correct? Yes. 
And if you could maybe make the distinction between the strong and the weak and provide people what the number might be for the weak principle. Yeah, right. That, that's a great question. So the strong principle is that life forms exactly the same way as it has on Earth. So that just means that essentially that life will form around 5 billion years and the error bar that we put on that is about um, a billion years. So we allow life to form between 4.5 and 5.5 billion years. That is that that's when life will, the intelligent life and communicating intelligent life will appear is within that limited uh, range of time. The weak principle is that it takes 5 billion years at least to form a communicating intelligent life. So that life can, can form at 5 billion years, 6 billion years, 7 billion years, all the way up to the age of the, uh, the star. Because obviously you can't have uh, life forming in a star um, over a time period which is older than the uh, star's age. So the star's age is like upper limit to how long that life can form. So that gives you a lot more time for, for the life to form within the, um, within the star. And when you use that, you find that there's a, a couple thousand uh, possible of these, these, these uh, communicating extraterrestrial intelligence, intelligence throughout our galaxy, which we call um, Chetty with the C. That's what we call them. And so it's slightly different. So depending on how you assume things will form, that's what you would, that's what you would find if you only use this 5 billion years or so as a lower limit for the amount of time it takes for this communicating intelligent civilization to form. Gotcha. And uh, you know, just for the audience's sake, the, the median age of stars in the galaxy is what, about 10 billion years, as I recall? It's, uh, it's in our paper. I'm, I know I'm going to say it wrong, unfortunately, <laughs> but it's a, I think it's around nine would be my uh, recollection. Actually, you have the median age as 10.35. How about that? 10.35. Okay, sorry. So I was a little bit off. So it's it's about five giga years. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The, the mean age is a bit lower than that, though. We know that a lot of there's that skew down at the low end for the giant stars. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, yeah, the median it's about 10. Let's call, let's call it 10, uh, close enough. Another question I had that you didn't address is that I recall from the uh, course in stellar evolution, or actually it was part of an astronomy course I took when I was in college, uh, that the uh, supernovas were much more common in the earlier days than today. Uh, would that yeah. in any way change your analysis? No, we didn't consider that. And the reason we didn't is because supernovas certainly are more common when you have more star formation events. And those will have occurred, let's say, billions of years ago. So the star formation in our galaxy peaked about three or four billion years after the Big Bang. And now we are almost 14 billion years after the Big Bang. So that was a long time ago when the peak of star formation occurred. And those supernova would have happened within a couple hundred million years of this, you know, when the star formation happens. So most supernova in our galaxy would have occurred much earlier in its history. And you have to be pretty close to a supernova for it to really affect uh, the life on the, uh, on the planet. So it's probably not a major production or destruction of of these life forms within our galaxy, especially when we know the rate is about, oh, I'm, I'm gonna say it wrong, but the, the, the rate is I think only maybe a couple of century at most for these supernova happening within our own galaxy. And they're not necessarily the type which come about in star formation, but are the, uh, um, the type one supernova, which are thought to be produced by gas and falling onto like a neutron star or black hole. And th those are, 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 are also pretty, pretty rich in energy but again they're not really that common throughout our galaxy's history through our galaxy's history today at least and so if you have a civilization that typically can last uh, a couple hundred years but you have these supernova happening maybe a few a century at most it's very unlikely that they're going to be so close that they would uh, totally destroy that civilization gotcha i was thinking of more as a source of metals right and i, you know, I think uh, our sun is thought to be what at least a third generation star maybe maybe more and un unusually late and that there was a yeah. supernova not that long before the sun formed uh that seeded it with an unusual may maybe maybe an unusual uh rich assortment of uh higher atomic weight elements well that's a really good question is how many supernova produce the elements that we we use on earth that made up our solar system and that's kind of a tricky tricky thing to know it's probably not just one in fact i'm pretty sure it's not just one it probably is a collection of many over you know eons of time happening right so the, the sun the sun formed in our own galaxy about eight billion years after the uh, galaxy was born so you've had eight billion years of of evolution and and 
star formation and the supernova happening, which can produce tons of these kind of metals, which the solar system formed from. So it's not just one supernova, but it's it's likely to be very many. Yeah. Got it. All right. Well, let's go. Also, let's talk about this key number L, uh, which yeah. is uh, you know again one uh, you know why I thought think it's so interesting to tell us about ourselves and our destiny. Uh, L being the average length of a communicating uh, intelligent civilization, or let's at least call it species. It may not have a civilization, but let's call it a species that is able to broadcast, uh, at least for these purposes, radio waves uh, out into space. And, you know, one thing that's important to note is that if we use radio waves as a metric, there's two ways this radio waves could stop being emitted. One is the civilization loses the capacity, let's say it collapses, uh, either from a natural cause like an asteroid or an endogenous cause like, uh, you know, a nuclear war, uh, or, and this is one in, you know, in the study of the Fermi paradox comes up quite a bit, is maybe they stop using radio waves and they use something else. You know, they use gravity waves or neutrino beams or, or, or even directed laser beams, uh, uh, some other form of communications that, that at least today we would, we would have it difficult to uh, track, though I do know uh, from conversations with people in the city world, uh, they are now starting to think about how to detect point-to-point uh, -point, uh, laser communication. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot a lot to say about L, right? That's really one of the key things. Yeah. And you're absolutely, absolutely right to say that it tells us about, about ourselves. So one day when SETI actually uh, studies the entire galaxy, and it won't be anytime soon, but let's say they know, let's say they know for sure that there's no life within uh within our galaxy at all that's existing uh right now that we can detect now let's assume that they also have rolled out these things about neutrinos and gravitational waves and stuff and that we know for sure that there's no other life in in the galaxy well that would tell us a couple of things it would tell us that either the lifespan of the civilizations on average is very short or it would tell us that we are indeed very unique in the terms of our formation and that our formation is sort of outside of a natural progression of science but is more of a random thing which which happened in 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 some random way right maybe life is just something which you know you just just so happens right it doesn't happen uh, uh, by nature so to speak but just develops sort of on its own in its own way in a way that we don't really understand so the other thing is, is that if, let's say, SETI succeeds and we start finding lots of these civilizations, let's say, close to us. So with this 36 number I talked about, the typical distance to those civilizations will be about 17,000 light years away, which is really far. And it'd be really hard to detect a signal coming from any of those kind of, of, of civilizations simply because of the distance and the signal would be very weak by the time it got to us. But let's say you, you have detected with SETI many civilizations throughout our galaxy. Let's say, you know, within our own local universe where if SETI exists in great abundance, that's where you'd find it first because simply that's just the easiest to find. Then it would really tell us something about L. It would tell us that L must be quite long, that the average lifespan of an intelligent communicating uh, civilization in our galaxy, the lifetime of that is quite long. And that would be really good news for our own existence, assuming that these creatures are similar to us and the way that we have technology and the way that we can destroy ourselves and the way that we can be destroyed, as you say, by asteroids or by other parts of uh, astronomy, let's say supernova, gamma ray bursts, etc. So that would really be something great for us to learn, not just of that existence of life that exists throughout the galaxy and other places, but also that actually we may have a chance of figuring out how to survive at, on our own planet for uh, a very long time to come. And that, I think, would be a, a great thing to know as well. So it tells us not only about how, where we came from, but it tells us where we're going and how long we might actually be around. So SETI is important for both of those things. It's really important to tell us if we're alone, but also it tells us something about where we might be going into the future and where we actually did come from. So it's really answering really fundamental questions. But I'd, I'd like to come back to the this idea of um, gravitational wave and uh, neutrino physics and stuff being used as sort of a more difficult way of, of transmitting. I find it hard to believe that if a civilization arose throughout the galaxy and was intelligent and was able to develop technology, that they wouldn't have some kind of phase where they actually were using 
similar technology that we do, like electromagnetic radiation, which is uh, super common throughout the whole universe. And it's an easy way to communicate, easy way to transmit information, etc. And it'd be very hard to imagine that a civilization would go from being, you know, non-technological to having, you know, gravitational wave uh, communication. That would be almost impossible to believe. So there must be some phase where they're actually doing some kind of electromagnetic transmission, and it's be impossible to have that not escape from its host planet out into space. So looking for that kind of thing, I think, is still uh, a very valuable thing to keep continue to do. Now, one of the criticisms I have with SETI is I don't think that these intelligent uh, communicating civilizations will actually necessarily want to be found, and I don't think they're sending out huge radio signals to, to be found. It's something that we would have to detect just based on whatever they're sending out to each other, and we just happen to catch a glimpse of it, uh, you know, through our own our own um, mechanisms, but 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 not necessarily something that was meant for us to see. So, and and that's going to be very hard to do because why would they send out a big signal on their own planet uh, that we would need to actually detect it ourselves? Why would they send out that signal? So we got to really look for very very faint. Signals, which is why SETI looking in the radio uh, is going to be really difficult to do for for more distant objects. This is outside the focus of your paper, but something we've talked about before with other guests is exactly this question, uh, which is called METI, messaging extraterrestrial intelligence. You know, there are a group of uh, people who are advocating that the human race start to broadcast uh, to the world or to the universe, to the galaxy at least, uh, hey, we're here. And then there's another faction very strongly argues that would be the stupidest thing in the world, right? Because okay. uh, you know, using some evolutionary arguments, it's possible that if interstellar travel wherever possible predator species may be more common than prey species yeah. and that to uh you know yell out we're here until we know what's going on in the uh, galaxy might be uh, really dumb do you have any do you have an opinion on the medi controversy yeah so of course you know i have people who email me now daily saying that they they do medi uh, all the time but of course <laughs> They, they think that uh, they're being <laughs> communicating with aliens now. You'd be, you'd be amazed at some of the emails I get. Yeah, probably via their dental fillings, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I'm too afraid to ask in more detail. Some of these messages are very scary. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, the, the, the communication with um, these other civilizations, I think, would be really hard to do, not just because of the distances. I think this goes to the Fermi paradox to some degree if we get to that is that these great distances make it really almost impossible to communicate. So if you have a something 17,000 light years away and we detect them and we send off a signal to them um, when we detect them saying, hello, you know, welcome to Earth or whatever, then it would take 17,000 years to get to them. And then if they reply, it would take 17,000 years to get back, right? Because speed of light is, is constant. So that would take 34,000 years for us to receive an answer to our message, which is, you know, that's a really long time. It's hard to imagine that. But at the same time, if the lifetime of those civilizations is only a few hundred years or even a few thousand years, then they would be long gone by the time our signal would reach them. So we really even could not communicate, even if they could detect our signal and could understand it and then send a, an answer back that we could understand, they would be long gone. So you have to have a combination of um, being close by, but also having a long a long lifetime of civilizations. Now, this whole idea about uh, being scared of, of aliens and not wanting to transmit our, 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 our information about our existence, I, th I think is wrong. I think the reason for that, the reason it's wrong, is that if any kind of alien civilization is, is so highly technical that they could come to us and say and potentially destroy us, which they probably could if they were able to, to transmit that, that amount of space, that civilization must be very advanced, much more advanced than ours. So they really have been around much longer than we have. I won't speculate how long, but let's say, you know, thousands, millions of years longer than we've been, been developing our technology. So they have all kinds of technology, which is incredible, I'm sure. But at the same time, they've also had to manage to find a way to to not destroy themselves. That is, they found a way where they they haven't, you know, done the equivalent of nuclear war or had you know global warming destroy everybody or 
you know, found a way that to get people to wear masks when they have like a COVID type disaster going on like we do now so that not everyone just dies, dies away. So they've managed to figure that out. And that takes, I think, some sophistication. I think this is something that our own species still needs time to develop. This is a sophisticated way of being able to live together, to survive um, for, for longer than a few hundred years with a, a high degree of technology. And this will be a challenge for humans in the coming centuries, is how, how do we manage this? We've already had to deal with it, of course, in the last hundred years. And it's only going to get worse with things like AI and who knows what else is coming up. So they've managed to do that. So I would like to think that they have, and maybe this is just me being uh, crazily optimistic, is that they've managed a way to have a, a philosophy or a, a, a sort of a the way they look at the universe, the world, and ever, other living creatures perhaps is that you know they're not there to be destroyed, but they're there to somehow live in some kind of you know harmony or, or, or whatever, you know what have you, in terms of not just destroying things, but finding a way to, to, to be peaceful, to, 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 to manage things better. So that's the way I like to think of it. Now, I could be wrong. So if, if, you know, if an alien does come out on, on lands on Earth, I certainly wouldn't want to be the first person to come talk to it. But uh, that's the way that uh, uh, you know, I like to see it. And, and um, I think that the, the, the reason that they could survive so long, that they must have a way of, uh, of understanding that Destruction is not a good way of, of keeping their civilization afloat. Um, so that that's kind of how I see that one. And actually, that's uh, may actually be an argument to urgently send out many messages. <laughs> I mean, it looks like we have lots of ways to kill ourselves. Maybe it's a lifeboat uh, mayday message. Hey, we're about to blow our planet up by uh, nuclear weapons or fry ourselves or let loose nanobots that turn the planet into gray goo or something. How is there anybody else out there that uh, managed to get past all these traps? Please tell us how you did it. Yeah. Uh, of course, uh, per your calculation, uh, it might be 17. 15,000 years yeah, before right. we got the answer, in which case it may well be too late. In fact, actually, I had a thought when you were saying that, that there's another calculation you could do from your calculations. Uh, I would encourage your student to do this, which is that let, let's say you set a parameter that you want uh, two civilizations to be able to do at least five round trips to be able to explore. Uh, exchange their knowledge and touch points and translate each other's languages, etc. Uh, there is some L which will then create a probability uh, map of how big does L have to be to have a 50% chance, say, of uh, there being a civilization for which you could have five round trips. I know you can derive that from the numbers that you guys have put together. I'd encourage you guys to do that. It would be very, very interesting. Uh, does L have to be 100,000 to be able to have a high enough density? What's the cool thing about your calculations is the longer L is, the higher the density is, right. and therefore the more round trips you can have, uh, both because they're closer and because L is long. They don't blow up while you're trying to have the round trips. So that would be kind of a fun number to calculate. Yeah, it would. And, and it might actually uh, tend to rule out a uh, tight-knit – well, I don't know what to tell you. I'd love to do that. Uh, what, another topic before we'll get to the final one, which will be the Fermi paradox, uh, is in addition to SETI classic search for uh, radio and also uh, just beginning uh, laser, another branch of SETI that's getting more and more attention is the techno-signatures uh, branch of SETI, where instead of looking for emissions, we look at uh, things that might be masking the uh, emissions of the uh, of stars. In fact, there's you know still one oddball candidate that has this odd variable uh, signature of uh, solar emissions, which is uh, not known to uh, to meet up with any known uh, you know type of star. And you know we have things conceptually like the Dyson shell, which is an advanced enough civilization, builds a shell around its star to harvest all the energy or a lesser version, the Dyson ring, which is a ring around its star, which uh, occludes a fair amount of the solar energy. And uh, so the people are starting to look at for techno signatures as well. And so far they haven't found any, obviously, but there's, you know, at least one can at Tabitha's star, I think it's called. Is that what it's called? Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. So anyway, your thoughts on, on techno signatures and what they might help or hurt or help refine some of these numbers in, in your uh, revised equation. Yeah, I, I, I really think that's the most likely way that we'll find a Chetty civilization throughout the, throughout the galaxy or even in other galaxies. Something that really uh, hasn't been done too much is look, look for 
communicating intelligent life, so to speak, and other other galaxies, because there's two trillion galaxies in our universe, and we're only really looking at one, and really only looking at a small, small volume of that one galaxy with traditional SETI. So I, I'm a big fan of, of looking for techno signatures. Now, people have done searches for Dyson spheres in our own galaxy using the infrared, looking for basically anything which is uh, you know bright in the infrared, which is unexpected, and they haven't really found anything. There's really no good candidates for that throughout our galaxy. It doesn't mean there aren't any. It's just that what we can see so far, we haven't really seen anything. But that might just be our own galaxy. So if you have so many galaxies throughout the universe and you have some probability of each galaxy having an advanced technology, then if you have enough galaxies, eventually you'll find a galaxy which which has had a intelligent life in it for millions of years or so, hundreds of millions of years maybe. And over that period of time, you can really do a lot. I mean, you can really take over the galaxy, perhaps. If you look at the way that humans, of our technology has expanded throughout the last even just 100 years, just imagine what we could do if that rate of technology continued for, for centuries or thousands of years or millions of years. It would just be unimaginable, the things that we can do. So that, I think, is a really good approach to looking for SETIs, to try to find these kind of uh, alien archaeology, archaeoastronomy uh, type things. Throughout the uh, throughout the universe, not just our own galaxy, but but in other galaxies. Now, of course, the question is, how do you find such a thing? Okay, that's that's really the trick. What would these, you know, technology signatures look like, even on a, a small scale within a galaxy? Right? Would they just be Dyson spheres? Would they just be stars that are all sort of taken up by a, a, a sphere around them, where the light can't be seen? At least at least not in the optical, but in the uh, only emits maybe in the infrared, or would there be something else? And it's really hard to imagine what other things you could do. I mean, you could imagine maybe they move stars around. Maybe a galaxy has its shape changed by these these communicating uh, civilizations. Well, I shouldn't call them communicating, but these these highly technical civilizations in other galaxies. They can move stars around. They could have big regions of Dyson spheres. They can you know dim the whole galaxy so they can. They can power up their civilization to do whatever, whatever they, whatever they need to do. So I, th- I think that's really uh, a good, a good thing to look for. Now, there's very little work on that. The people have done a little bit looking in external galaxies for things, and I've actually done a project on this myself recently with some students, uh, looking for galaxies which deviate from what we call scaling laws, which is where you have a very tight relationship between two quantities. If a galaxy falls off that relationship, the good question is why does it do that? And one of the ways that might do it is if there's something altering the shape of the galaxy or that's light, and one of those things could be an intelligence. Now, it's un- very unlikely, and in fact, we didn't find anything either, but it's possible. And so people have done this a little bit. And this has been going around, I don't know, a long time now. 30 years is probably as, as long as people have been looking at this. But it has been the papers on this are very few. So I mean, big gaps of like five, five, ten years where no one does anything. But there have been papers in the literature for the last 30 years or so where people have looked for these kind of things in external galaxies. Uh, but very few people are, are working on that. And SETI, the mainstream SETI is really looking for these radio signals and maybe the lasers, like you said, coming from nearby stars. But I really think that we should think more about about looking for these kind of of of, of alien uh, signatures and the, the technology um, overtaking part or all of the all of the galaxy. I, I'm I, I'd be really keen to see more people do that. Yeah, it, it does annoy the hell out of me that if uh, you know SETI is to my mind the second most important uh, scientific question, and unlike the first most important question, why is there something rather than nothing? We can actually do something about it. Why is the funding for SETI so small? Uh, and you know, and as we talked about early on in, in your introduction, why is it even considered dangerous uh, for a career in uh, astronomy or astrophysics to, to be? A SETI person. It seems to me uh, that if this is such a huge question, yeah. and we are actually at the place where we're getting real data, uh, why shouldn't this be funded at you know hundreds of millions of dollars a year? Right. That that's a really good question, and and I thought a lot about this. And if you look at the history of astronomy, there there really are topics which are somewhat taboo and 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 discouraged from people looking at. Even astrophysics itself 
150 years ago was considered to be sort of a rogue thing and it wasn't considered to be mainstream astronomy. Uh, astronomy back then was looking at star positions and stuff like that. And people like Auguste Comte, the uh, philosopher, the French philosopher, said, said in the beginning of the uh, um, or the mid of the mid nineteenth century, that we'll never know what stars are made of. These kind of things, but then people got spectrographs, started looking at stars, and found out. Yeah, we know. You know, only a few years after he said that, people knew what stars were made of. And then you have a good, a great example, which I think is the closest example to to SETI is cosmology. So for a very long time, people who thought about the idea of where did the universe come from, how did it start, how old is it, all this stuff were thought to be, oh, this is religion. This is not something that really uh, a serious scientist should look at. But of course now cosmology is is, is mainstream astronomy. It's mainstream astrophysics. And it, it in some ways dominates the field, dominates the funding. So SETI is similar to that. And you're absolutely right that it's one of the big questions. It's, it's really up there with, with top two or three questions you could possibly ask in all of science. So why is it not really well respected? I think it's simply because there's really no data, and that's sort of the same thing that you had with the problem with cosmology. So certainly whenever we, whenever we do detect sort of life, and I think that will happen in the next decade or so, I think we will detect some kind of life on other planets, uh, evidence for it. But that life will be very simple. You know, it could be analogous to plants or something like that. And it'll be found just by looking at chemical elements in the atmospheres of, of, of planets, which is something that we can do now uh, quite uh, quite easily, although not, not to the ability to find evidence for life. But there are many new telescopes coming online, like James Webb Space Telescope and these big new telescopes that will be 30 meters in diameter on, on the ground that can, can do these spectroscopic studies that can find these elements and molecules in the atmospheres of planets, which can tell us that perhaps or definitely there's something going on, which is probably some form of life. So I think that will happen. And that, I think, will help a lot. I think when we discover that, there'll be a lot more enthusiasm for looking for intelligent life, which will be much harder to find. Glad you mentioned that. I was going to do that, which is that we're right on the verge of either detecting or not exolife yeah. by looking at the spectroscopy of, uh, of uh, atmospheres of exoplanets. And it's possible it might be a dry hole. I mean, you know, it could be that we'll look at uh, several hundred habitable zone uh, planet atmospheres and find uh, no life signature, which would, uh, you know, start to fill in one of the terms in the, in the equation, in the original Drake equation, at least, which you guys uh, chose to uh, not get into. Uh, which I think is a perfect transition to the Drake, I mean, not to the Drake equation, to the Fermi paradox, right? Uh, as people listen to the show know, anyone with a scientific background, I always ask them about their view of the Fermi paradox. And to uh, restate the Fermi paradox, it goes back to Los Alamos, at least this is the story that I've heard, where a bunch of young scientists uh, sitting at the lunch table were speculating, oh, there's got to be 100,000 smart, uh, intelligent uh, civilizations in the galaxy, yada, yada. And Enrico Fermi, the famous physicist, uh, came up to him and said, where are they? And uh, if they're there, where are they? And that's uh, been the, you know, this question, the Fermi paradox. How many are there? And if there are, really are some, uh, you know, why haven't we seen any sign of them? And there's arguments on both sides. One, essentially the Fermi paradox literature uh, tends to divide the analysis up into two classes. One, that there aren't any. Uh, and, and two, that they're there, but for various reasons, we can't see them or they don't want to see us and are actively avoiding us. In fact, there's a great book called If the Universe is Teeming with Aliens, Where is Everybody? by Stephen Webb, uh, which uh, goes through 75 different uh, solutions oh, yeah, to the yeah. Fermi paradox and and allocates them to the different buckets, you know, and on the, on, you know, on the, uh, they, it, there is no, nobody there. You know, some of those arguments are things like, uh, you know, life is exceedingly difficult or maybe not life, maybe simple life is uh, real simple, but what happened during the, right before the Cambrian explosion, 540 million years ago, uh, where the template that was laid down for all interesting multicellular life of our sort and every other interesting animal we know, uh, maybe that was a really weird uh, long shot, or maybe the uh, development of chloroplasts was an exceedingly uh, long shot. I think we've learned now that's happened more than once. Uh, so that's one side. And then there's a bunch of others, you know, uh, on the other side, which is everybody gets eaten by their AIs within 100 <laughs> years, right? Uh, 
uh, or they just decide, you know, the dark forest theory, got to be quiet. There's bad guys out there. So I'd love to know your thoughts. I mean, uh, if you've been working in this space, you have to have speculated about the Fermi paradox. If you had to put your flag on the ground, why haven't we detected anybody? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question, right? And yeah, indeed, I have thought a lot about this. So my solution to the Fermi paradox is simply just the fact of distances and rarity. So if if these kind of communicating extraterrestrials are rare, then they're going to be far away. And if they're far away, they're going to be really difficult to detect. And I would say a third thing is perhaps the lifetime of civilizations is not as long as we would like to think they are, that they're actually not not very long. So if you have those three things, and if you have those three, then then it's easy to solve the Fermi paradox. It's simply that there are maybe a couple of civilizations in our galaxy, but they're really primitive, like us, or close to us, and they, um, uh, they're so far away that we're not able to detect them, and they're not able to detect us. Now, you have to remember, if someone's looking at us at Earth, they would never see that we have a technical civilization unless they're about 100 light years away from us or closer. If they're further than that, we still look like a, a, a normal planet, right? We don't, have, don't even barely have lights happening. Lights are a bit older than 100 years. But anyway, you get the idea is that our bubble of intelligence that's projecting out into space is only about 100 light years in, in, in radius, which is not very big for the size of the galaxy. And there's very li- unlikely to be intelligent life within 100 light years of us. It's just very unlikely. Those stars and we certainly don't have it, or else we definitely would have noticed something by now, I would think. So by the fact that it's so rare and, and so far away, it's unlikely to, be, unlikely to be seen. And then if you have a, a short lifetime, then also unlikely to be seen, simply because they don't last long enough um, to develop a highly technical civilization that could reproduce itself in other stars or make robots that can reproduce themselves and don't even need the, the, you know, the biological alien anymore, but can survive for you know, perhaps tens of millions of years just by self-replication and going throughout the galaxy. Uh, just you know, And that eventually would come to us, but we haven't seen that. So that was, that's another sign that I think that this, this lifetime of these civilizations isn't very long, but it could be combined with the rarity of them as well, which is another reason why I think looking at external galaxies is another way of trying to find to find these things. Okay, that's interesting. So essentially it's a, a density is low and the average lifetime is short. You run the math and it's not surprising at all that we haven't yeah. detected anybody. I think you're, uh, yeah. you, you were saying uh, in your paper that it's uh, based on some reasonable set of assumptions, even including your rather optimistic assumption that life is easy. That's right. Uh, yeah. It might well take thousands, thousands of years to detect uh, uh, a uh, a, a civilization via the you know the current level of effort in the uh, in the SETI space, and obviously exactly. we've only been doing it for fifty or sixty years. So right. okay, very good. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation on one of my very favorite topics, and uh, I really want to thank you for being here. Thank you very much for the invitation. I really uh, really enjoyed it. All righty, thank you very much. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.